you, Mark and Grace, and thank you all for singing out. Uh, I would like to say, as you recall, we're in the Gospel of John, but you may not recall that. We have been doing a series in the Gospel of John. We've had a little uh, break from a while, but we are in John 15. John 15 is, it falls in, what we, in the middle of what we call the Upper Room Discourse. This is the evening of the Last Supper. Our, our Lord has gathered with his disciples. He has celebrated the Passover meal with them, and in the context of that, he is teaching them and preparing them for his soon departure. He's promised them in the previous sections that uh, he's not going to leave them orphans. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. But these are his parting words. It's so easy for us to look at that because we can see these things in the context of the whole gospel and the whole story. His disciples were missing much of that. They didn't fully comprehend that tomorrow, the cross, they didn't comprehend that in hours uh, they were going to leave this room, go down to the Garden of Gethsemane, and after a season of prayer, he would be taken from them, and they would not have another conversation with him until after the resurrection. And so these words were especially precious, and these were the, the heart of our Lord as he spoke to his disciples. Chapter 15 begins with that familiar passage about Christ being the vine and we are the branches. And he was emphasizing that their ability to serve God, their ability to produce fruit in their character and in good works uh, was not something they bring to God, but God brought to them. Their strength, their enabling would be through the life of Christ lived out in them. Just like you look at any tree, the, the, the ability to produce the leaves that that pop out of the littlest twig is coming from the life of the tree. And so Christ said, I am that tree, you are the branch, or I am the vine and you are the branch. And then he continued to talk to them about uh, his love and, and how they would live to follow him. And, he, and, he, and we, we talked about that section as well. He said, as the fathers loved me, I've loved you. If you keep my commandments, he said, you will abide in my love. Well, we come today to verses 12 to 17, and he's going to talk about that, that love lived out by his disciples. In John chapter 15, verses 12 to 17, and I encourage you to listen and follow along in your own Bible as I read. <clears throat> this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. So as our Lord in the previous section had talked about bearing fruit, because, you know, as they're connected to, as they abide in the vine. He, he spoke at the, in that in the context of the importance of obedience. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, he said, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. 
So, so he talked about your, we would express our love for Christ in our obedience, just as he showed his love for the Father in his obedience to the Father. And so we might ask then, and you know, a lot of times in our kind of a legalistic way or whatever, so what commandment exactly do you have in mind? What, what, what rules do you want us to follow? So often, you know, that's, that's where we run to. What are, the, what are the rules? Give me the details. What are the requirements? And sometimes that's good. Sometimes we'll, we'll play a board game, and they'll pull out a board game, and I'm not usually very good at those. And, but but I, I do know one of the first things to ask is, so what are the rules? And, and some, they'll dig around in the box, and, or, and sometimes they don't find the card. And I have to wonder if the rules that they recite, or if, I wonder if they're really the rules. They never seem to work in my favor. But anyway, but, but we've got to know the rules. I remember talking to a British friend of mine. I was, I'd watched a, a little while of, of a cricket game, and it was the craziest thing I ever saw. You know, they'd play for a while, and then they'd break for tea. And, and so I, I, I said... Um, how, how do you win a cricket game? And, he, and about, he started about three or four different times to try to explain. He said, I really can't explain it to you. Now you think about it. You know, you think about football or you think about baseball. It's, you know, there's some ba- pretty basic thing. Baseball, you hit the ball, you run around, the, and if you can get to the home base, you get a point. You know, football, you take that, that ball and you cross that line, you get points. The one with the most points win. This guy, they could, can't do that apparently with cricket. Um, something's not cricket about that. But anyway, I, I like rules. Lay it out for me, please. And so Jesus is, is laying out for them. So I've told you, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He, he, he brings it down to one statement. Verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So the, the commandments he's talked about, he said, let me put it to you in one commandment. That you love one another as I've loved you. He's saying that love sums it all up. In fact, we, we just read that in our catechism question in Matthew 22. You know, Jesus, you know, when, when you know, the question was brought to him, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbors yourself. And then he went on and said, on these two commandments hang the law and the prophets. So basically you can sum it up to love God and love man and you can basically sum it up to love. You could take, and the, the, the rabbis count up in the Old Testament 613 commands. And Jesus said you can sum it all up, summarize it all up in one word. Because they were often, that was the question they asked, what's the greatest commandment? Is it the Sabbath? Is it circumcision? Is it this? Is it that? And Jesus said, here's what it is. Love. If you love God, you'll love your neighbor. If you, and, and love sums up the whole law. Paul makes the same point in Romans 13, 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet and if there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbors yourself. You think about it, it makes sense. If I love someone, I'm not going to steal from them. Uh, if I love someone, I'm not going to murder them. If I love someone, I'm not going to lie to them or about them. L- 
So, in other words, if, if I have love, that'll cover it. If I love the Lord, I'm not going to take his name in vain. If I love the Lord, I'm not going to be unfaithful to him and worship other gods. So love summarizes it all. It makes sense that he's saying that. <clears throat> if, if I love someone, I'm seeking their well-being. I'm not going to hurt them by breaking the other commandments. Now, sometimes we hear that and see, you know, when he says, you shall love you know, your, one another as I have loved you. And a lot of times I'll hear the, the, the statement, but how can you command someone to love? You, you, either ha- you, know, you either have the love or you don't. You, know, you either feel it or you don't. And I guess the key to understanding that is understanding what is love. Now, you probably know there are about four, five different Greek words for love. And the word here is the word that's called agape love. And, 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 and that's an emphasizing, it's a love of the will. So often when we think of love, we think of, of feeling. Uh, we think of, uh, you know, oh, I, I love this person. Why? Because of the way they make me feel. Uh, I love them because of what they do for me. That's not the love that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a love that's an act of the will. Uh, love is an attitude and an and a, and a commitment to seek what's in the best interest of the other person. That's the, I, the essence of this love. When, when many of you have heard the passage, 1 Corinthians 13. It's probably one of the more common uh, wedding passages, right? When 1 Corinthians 13, notice what it, it doesn't talk about feeling, does it? In verses 4 to 8, love suffers long and is kind. Wait a minute, love suffers? Yeah, love is long-suffering. It has to be patient. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So you see, it doesn't say a thing about how you feel. Love is, a, is, is kind of a, a funny feeling in your stomach. Love is all warm and tingly. No, love is an attitude of seeking what's in the best interest of the other. Some quotes from uh, Christian writers that might be helpful. C.S. Lewis said this, Love is not a not affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. You might say that too. Your wife sometime. I have a steady wish for your ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. <laughs> but you get the point. It's not like, ooh, I feel all ooey gooey when you're in the room. I felt some of that with COVID this week. <laughs> John Stott says this, love is service rather than sentiment. That's a helpful, clear statement. He also says elsewhere, Christian love is not the victim of our emotions, but the servant of our will. That's how he can say, love your enemy. Sometimes we have to deal with the fact that the people we're called to love aren't too lovely or lovable. Reminds me of that little proverb, oh, to dwell with saints above, that will be glory. Oh, to dwell with saints below, well, that's another story. 
Love can be hard. It's not an ooey-gooey feeling, but it's a commitment to seek what's in the best interest of the other. And one, a couple older writers, W.H. Griffith Thomas, love is the, is the outgoing of the entire nature in self-sacrificing service. So it's seeking the best interest, and now Griffith Thomas is saying it's, it's, it's committing the entirety of who you are in that self, seeking the other's benefit. Amy Carmichael, the missionary to India in the previous generation, said, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. <clears throat> so Jesus said we're to love one another. That's, that's his command. Lord, lay, you know, so often we say, well, just, just put it in one cup, put it in one sentence. And Jesus said, okay, here it is. Love one another. But then he goes on, as I have loved you. That's, that's a challenging standard for love. He says, love one another as I've loved you. So not only is there a command, love, then here's the measure, as much and in the way he loved us. Christ's love is perfect. Not a one of us is perfect in our love. In our love for God, in our love for our family, in our love for one another. We're imperfect in our love. Christ's love is perfect. So, but that's the standard. Christ's love was never manipulative or selfish. Again, a verse that helps us think about God's love is Romans 5.8. That God demonstrates his love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. At the very moment we were unlovely, and the very moment we were actually his enemies, he gave the supreme act of love in giving himself for us. That's the standard. It's not selfish. It's not manipulative. A lot of times people will, 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 will express love really to get, to get whatever it might be, to to, to, to get the other person's affection, to try to win them over. That's not love. Love, true love, doesn't die when it's disappointed. True love is realistic, perfectly realistic in understanding who we are. We, you know, a lot of times love is blind. Um, no, love sees warts and all and loves. You may not be attracted to the warts and all, but the point isn't feeling. The point is giving. Giving what's in the best interest of the other. And so he makes his command even clearer when he, when he continues, greater love has no man than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Again, this isn't theoretical to the Lord. All through this evening, the cross is so much in his mind. Oh, it's been for some time. Well, it's been all for all his life, but it's becoming really, it's tomorrow, it's real, it's fresh. He can't get away from the fact that he is going to be the Passover lamb tomorrow. He's going to suffer the brutalities of the Roman court and the 
offenses of the Jewish false trials and the shame and horror of the cross and so much more. And so when he says true love lays down its life for his friends, that's exactly what he's going to be doing. Uh, Now, we need to think about the fact that when Christ laid down his life for us, that was unique. There's many times we can point to in history where people have laid down their lives for another. I think of the, uh, in in times of war, uh, those who've who've been willing to uh, storm the enemy, those who've thrown themselves on a grenade. Uh, I I, I was reading the account of a man who, they were in the midst of battle during World War II, and uh, he came under machine gun fire, and a bullet creased his forehead, and he fell face first into the mud. A friend came along and turned him over so he'd be able to breathe. And just as he had done that, then a a hand grenade came rolling up to them. And that friend threw himself on top of the one who was wounded. And the one who was wounded is the one who could tell the story. His friend gave his life and he said, I can never forget that. I can never forget that. I think of, we've just recently celebrated, celebrated, commemorated the 9-11 catastrophe and Can we ever forget the first responders, the firefighters loaded with all their gear, climbing up those stairs, urging people to get out, get out while they ran into the building? And I think by a certain point, they certainly understood that their likelihood of their getting out was very minimal. But that's not the issue. Wasn't it the motto of the Coast Guard? It's our job to go out. We're not... We don't have to come back. I think of the mothers pregnant with a child, and the doctor comes in and says, your life is at risk. You have to take this medicine to survive. But it will be devastating to the child. And mothers that have said, I'd rather my child live than I do. That's an incredible giving of, 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 of self, giving of life. But Christ's sacrifice of his life is greater in two ways. So do you understand, I am not minimizing what these have done. When I think of each of those examples, I think of heroes that should always be honored. You know, Memorial Day is something that's... De- uh, it, it should not be reduced just to hot dogs on a grill. It's the remembrance of the, of the cost of our freedom. Or in so many other ways we could think of that. But when Jesus, when, when each person that gave their life, the firefighter, the soldier, the mother, whatever the circumstance may be, they were already going to die. Jesus didn't have to die. He is life. He didn't hasten his death by giving his life. He took on upon himself. The Lord of life took on upon himself death. So his death was was unique in that way. He's the only one who didn't have to die. 
He had no sin. The wages of sin is death. He, he is the Lord of life. But he took upon himself death. And Paul talks about that in Philippians. He didn't just die physically either. He died spiritually. When the soldier falls upon the hand grenade. He's dying physically. Death has been often said is, is you can think of death as separation. Physical death is when our soul leaves our body. You know, medical people tried so hard to define when does death happen, how do we measure it, how are we sure. Um, the problem is we can't, there's no indicator, has the soul left the body yet. Um, but that's the true definition, when the soul leaves the body, absent from the body, present with the Lord for the believer. Separation. Spiritual separation, spiritual death is our separation from God. We cannot do that for someone else, but Jesus did. Jesus, the Lord of life, died. He didn't need to. Jesus, on the cross, suffered more than physical death. And the cry, there are seven cries from the cross that our Lord lifted up as he was dying. The one that just always uh, speak, you know, it, it penetrates to the marrow of my bone. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, expressing spiritual death, the separation, that God the Son, who had only known eternal, perfect communion with the Father, was now the Father in the darkness of that moment, physical and spiritual, turning his back on the Son and pouring the wrath of hell upon him. And here we see Jesus, instead of crying as he always prays, Abba, Father, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so Jesus' death is unique in that he didn't have to die physically. And he died spiritually. He bore the wrath of God. He, he was separated from the Father in these, on those moments on the cross. So what is Christ calling us to do? Is he just say, he's, he's, he's not just saying go and, and die for someone. But what he is saying is necessarily. I mean, that, it may involve physical death, giving our life. But, but it's not just that. He's calling for us to, to die to self-interest. To willingly sacrifice our interests, our desires, our pleasures for the best being, the well-being of the other. The, the essence of love is setting aside self-interest, self-comfort. Again, Philippians 2, Paul describes that. In verses 4 to 8, Paul says this, Let each of you look out not to only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, Taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Love is the opposite of selfishness. It's the enemy of selfishness. Again, in our culture, love is all about self. I love you because you make me feel good. I love you because you do good things for me. Sometimes I question the love of my dog. It seems much more emphatic when she suspects I have a treat in my pocket. I question the validity of her love. But I won't get into that. Love is the opposite of selfishness and self-interest. We're called to deny ourselves. I'm reminded of a story, and let me see if I can find it real quickly here. Um, it, it comes from a CNN reporter. Martin Savage of CNN was embedded with the 1st Marine Battalion. And he was talking with four young Marines in Iraq. Um, he was live on CNN when this was happening. And he, and he had been telling the story of how well the Marines had been looking out for uh, for and taking care of him. You know, he was telling him, these guys are taking me safe. They're, they're watching over me. I'm great. Ever since the war started. He went on to tell about the many hardships the Marines endured since the war began. How they looked after one another. And then he turned to them and said... Um, He'd checked with their commander and he'd given permission. They could use his video phone to make a call home. He thought, what a treat. These guys are out there isolated. The 19-year-old Marine next to him asked Martin if he would allow his platoon sergeant to use his call to call his pregnant wife back home. He had not been able to talk to her in three months. The stunned savage was visibly moved by the request and shook his head, and, and the young Marine ran off to get the sergeant. Savage recovered after a few seconds, turned back to the three young Marines still sitting with him, and asked which one of them would like to call home first. And the Marine closest to him responded without a moment hesitation, Sir, if it's all the same, we would like to call the parents of a buddy of ours, Lance Corporal Brian Busing of Cedar Key, Florida, who was killed on March 23, 03. We want to see how his family's doing. At that point, Martin Savage totally broke down, was unable to speak. All he could get out before signing off was, where did they get young men like this? That's a picture of true love. Not thinking of self, but thinking of others. And that's what Christ is calling us to. In verse 14, he said, You're my friends if you do whatever I command you. Now he he talks about being his friends. He's expressed the the ultimate of love is to lay down our life. But he said, If you you do what I command you, you're my friend. Is he saying that we earn his, his friendship, his love, if we obey him? No. Once again, this is the picture of we show that we're his friends by our obedience. That's the evidence that we're loved by him. That's the evidence we're his friends, our obedience. Following Christ 
loving Christ means obeying Christ. And again, we've talked about that before. So often people want to contrast, is it love or obedience? Love obeys. If you love me, you will obey me. And he goes on, no longer do I call you servants. A servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends for all things that I heard from my father. I've made known to you slaves. The, the master didn't spend time talking to the slave and explaining all that was on his life, going on in his life and whatever. You know, his thing is do the task. That's not how you treat, that's not what you do with a friend. The friend isn't brought into the confidence. A friend, you tell what's on your mind, what your plans are. You might ask for advice. You tell what's on your heart. That brings to mind uh, an incident in the life of Abraham. In all the Old Testament, only one man is called a friend of God. Abraham. In James 2.23, we read, The scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. He was called the, the friend of God. Isaiah 41.8, But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. God called Abraham his friend. That's the only man he says that of. When God was preparing to send judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, we read in Genesis 18, verses 17 and 18, a comment the Lord God made. Genesis 18, 17 and 18, the Lord God said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So what is God saying? Abraham is my friend. Abraham is my chosen one. So I'm going to tell Abraham what I'm going to do. And, and Jesus is saying, you're my friends. I bring you into my confidence. I share my heart with you. And Lord Jesus is opening his heart and telling his plans to his disciples who are his friends. What, a, what an incredible expression of grace. What a humbling expression of love. That the king of glory would so open his heart to him. I keep thinking in the lives of the disciples how later on their hearts must have broken some as they thought how much he shared that they didn't get. If only I'd listened more. If only if I'd stopped talking and listened and heard what heard, not what he was saying, but what he was saying from his heart. But again, notice Jesus is saying, if you, if you love and obedience go hand in hand. We're not ignorant servants mindlessly following Jesus. We're friends and sons of God. God opens his heart to us. And as we draw near and he reveals his heart and his will, then our heart is to, to do his will. I remember talking to a military officer one time and he said he'd, had reached the rank now where he had to be careful what he said in the presence of his subordinates. Because if, if they got the idea he was even hinting at something he wanted done, they'd run off and do it. <laughs> and sometimes he was just, uh, just talking. You ever do that? Well, maybe tomorrow I'm going to wash the car. Maybe not. Uh, and so he had to be careful, you know, when he didn't say something that they took as 
That's what he wants done. He had to guard his speech because they were so quick to do what they thought he wanted. That's where we, our hearts should be with the Lord, eager to know and do. <clears throat> Verses 16 and 17, the Lord continues, and he says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Back in those days, interestingly enough, students chose the rabbi. The rabbi didn't choose the student. In other words, there were lots of rabbis going around teaching all over the place in various schools. And so the student would say, I like that rabbi's teaching. I want to be taught by him. And they would go, and rabbi, would you accept me as a student? Kind of reminds me when I was going to seminary, I sensed after a while that, you know, Seminary is the direction to God was directing me. Now, which seminary? So I got a bunch of catalogs. I looked at, uh, at seminaries and evaluated on things. But, but one of the things I, I looked at is who's the faculty? And then I said, I, I, that's why I went to Dallas Seminary. I, I wanted to study under those. Fa- I looked at the, the faculty that was in their catalog and looked at the books that were on my shelf, and there was a correlation. <laughs> I was already reading these guys, so I'm going to go study with these guys. But I made the selection of them. And Jesus said, tells his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. You know, if they chose him, they might have made a mistake. I wonder how many students have said, I, I chose the wrong seminary. Or I chose the wrong school. I chose the wrong professor. I've, I've, now, I have made that mistake. I've gotten into a class and thought, what have I done? <laughs> And you, know, you just got to buckle down and try and survive. <clears throat> but Jesus is saying, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And he says, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. They were chosen, he says, to bear fruit. Now some, by the way, will question, okay, is he talking here about um, salvation cho- choosing or uh, service choosing. I think he's talking about choosing them to be apostles. But for them to be apostles, first he had to choose to save them. So you can't totally separate them. But his point is, I, I chose you. And that, that's encouraging. Because he doesn't make mistakes. And if he chose me, he's responsible for this. And, and, and so he's going he's gonna to see it through. But he says, I, appoint, I chose you and appointed you that you would bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That sounds to me, reminds me, he says, and that you should, you're supposed to go and bear fruit. That sounds like the Great Commission. Teaching them to go and make disciples. Teaching them to obey what I've commanded. So he's, he's choosing them to go and serve, to go and bear fruit. So here on the night of his arrest, on the eve of his crucifixion, the Lord's already looking past the empty tomb and Pentecost to the sending forth of his apostles into the world. I've chosen you to go and bring the gospel to the world. That applies to us as well. God has chosen us to be his people, to bear fruit. And I'm thinking of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For 
We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so this incredible insurance, as we walk with the Lord, we will bear fruit. Sometimes we wonder, am I doing something meaningful, lasting with my life? What am I doing with my life? If we're faithful followers of Christ, we're going to bear lasting fruit. That's his assurance. That's why he chose us, to bear lasting fruit. As we walk in obedience, we'll bear fruit and it will remain. And he says, and it goes on, and says that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. And, and prayer, he's reminding us, is an essential part of that. So as we go forward in our Christian life, in our love for the Lord, our desire is to do his will. And as we do his will, we're going to see life, we're going to bear fruit that's eternal. And part of that will come as we pray and seek God's grace and wisdom and direction and enabling. And then he brings it all back together in verse 17. These things I command you, that you love one another. So the Lord speaks of our love for one another. The disciples had some work to do. We're already told that they were squabbling on the road. They were actually arguing at the table, at the Lord's table. They were arguing who's the greatest of one another. The big thing is who sits where. Back in that time, your seating was assigned and that showed you something. Whenever I go to any kind of one of these fundraiser banquets, I, I don't know why, but I'm always right next to the kitchen door. <coughs> maybe they think I, I like the smell. or <laughs> Maybe not. You know, you know, you can look way up ahead, and there's people up there by the speaker. No, not there. I remember reading one time that Queen Elizabeth had some huge state dinner. All the other monarchs of Europe and the world were being invited. Well, they're all kings or queens. How do you figure out which one sits where? She figured it out. Uh, they were, they were, she was the, the one who was, had most reigned for the longest time. So the seating was arranged on how long you'd been a monarch. Got it all figured out. No one could argue. It wasn't how big your country, how rich you were, how smart you were, how long have you been in service. And so they figured out the seating order. Well, the disciples are debating who's the greatest, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus, as he's about to die, is telling them, you've got to love one another. I'm commanding you, love one another. Pride and selfishness have no place in that. So they're going to have to work on their love. He modeled that love for them. He's going to send the Holy Spirit to empower that love in them. And then the encouragement is, as they live out that love, it'll be contagious. Have you ever noticed how behavior can be contagious? I get so discouraged looking at the news and seeing you know, these people that are going in and looting these stores and all that, and riots and terrible things. That's a contagious behavior as well. Someone gets on there, a lot of times they'll get on social media, and all of a sudden you get a crowd doing wicked things. Behavior and attitudes can be contagious. That's also true of love. As we speak kindly, as we, we love and serve one another, that's contagious. I heard of an example of that back in World War II. Do you ever hear the, the, about the movie or the story, the, the bridge over the river Kwai? There really was a Kwai uh, Valley, and there really was a POW camp there. 
And uh, the, what they would do is they would pair up the, the POWs together. One would be like the senior and the other would be the, the lower level. And, and they would pair them up and they would work on things together. Well, this one pair that was uh, signed together, uh, the, 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 the head guy was Angus. And the guy working with him was an older guy and weak, and he was really struggling, and, 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 and he was really having a hard time because he not only was he not eating well, he was, he was cold. Someone had stolen his blanket. They were stealing from each other there in the POW camp. And so Angus uh, gave him his blanket and said, that's all right, I'll get another one, which he didn't. And he could see that he wasn't getting enough food. Sometimes people were stealing the food from his, his subordinate. And so uh, he started giving him his food and said, that's right, I can get some more. Eventually, his, uh, his helper was restored to as much health as you could have in that camp. His life was saved by Angus, but in the process, Angus' own health suffered and he died. As the other prisoners realized what had happened, it was transforming. That Angus had willingly given up his comfort and given up his own nutrition to save the life of someone else spoke to them. And, and it was contagious. And soon it spread among the POWs, where they were looking out for each other, caring for one another, uh, giving for one another, thinking less of self, and I've got to help you survive. Before, uh, before long, there was even a, a little church there among the POWs. They called it the Church Without Walls. And after a while, some of the Japanese prison guards started coming to their church services. Because Angus had demonstrated the love of Christ. And it was contagious in the body. As Christ was getting ready to die and send his, his apostles forward, he, his, what was the most on his mind? Love one another. He could have said, it's contagious. You've got to take that into the body of Christ. One time when the uh, Salvation Army, which was actually a Christian ministry, was meeting for their international meeting, the founder, General Booth, William Booth, couldn't make it. That was the first time he couldn't make it to one of their international meetings. So he sent them a one-word telegram to be read. Others. Others. If they could catch that spirit, then the Salvation Army would be on track. That's what Jesus is saying to us in our own lives, in our families. If we're living to serve the best interest of the others in our family, not our comfort, not our will, not our way. But how can I help the others to find what's best? Not necessarily even what they want, but to, to know what it means to know Christ and follow Christ. Within the church, 
How can we so love one another that it's contagious, that it's encouraging? I was a victim of contagion this week. I had so many notes of encouragement, so many uh, different soups. Um, it was it was constant. There was there, I was constantly encouraged by the love of the brethren. That's a nice contagion. Um, I hope we never test negative for that one. In other words, I'm, I'm, what I'm saying, I'm not here to rebuke you and say, you guys got to start loving like Jesus could have done to those disciples. You, you knuckleheads. <laughs> You're arguing with each other. I'm going to die for you tomorrow. Come on, get it together. But, but he was trying so much to say, look at what I've tried to live and show you. And I'm not here to say you knuckleheads. I'm saying you're doing great, but I'm, as Paul said to the Thessalonians, but excel still more. Be intentional in living out your love for Christ and your love for one another, starting at home, here in the church, and then into our community. Can you imagine what was going through the minds of those Japanese guards that they were drawn to worship with these POWs? They were seeing something that they didn't know. Brothers and sisters, look at this world around us. I constantly quote the passage that says, in the end times, love will grow cold. That, to me, is where our world is. But we can show them something different. As we follow Christ... We can show them Christ in our love for one another, in our love for others, as we die to self-interest. Now, please hear me. Jesus wasn't saying, you do these things and you'll get saved. What he's saying is, when you trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, you will do these things. The life of Christ will flow through you. The love of Christ will flow through you. If you have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, don't walk out of here saying, I'm going to be nicer to people next week. No. If you have yet to trust in Jesus Christ, the message is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, recognizing you're a sinner. He died for sinners. And he's offering you forgiveness in life if you trust in him as Savior. But for those of us born again, Don't get caught up in the world's contagion of coldness and selfishness. But instead, we need to be a light of hope in darkness. Father, thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who showed us love. He didn't stop at commanding us. He showed us love. May we walk in those footsteps by his grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.